the one thing I think is that we are about five minutes into this revolution. It's going to take a hundred, if not two hundred years, to to begin to understand it and sort it out. And everybody wants solutions by next Monday, you know. Um, and I sometimes I don't feel sorry for Mark Zuckerberg very often, the, the owner of Facebook. Um, but I do think he has created something which is infinitely bigger, more problematic, and uh, more complex than any 31-year-old could reasonably <laughs> <laughs> dream of. Hello and welcome to Confessions. I'm Giles Fraser. This is the podcast where I'm joined by well-known people in an attempt to find out what it is that makes them tick. I'm going to try and drill down into some of their core beliefs to understand better who they are and what they're on about. With me today is Alan Rusbridger, a former editor of The Guardian and now principal of Lady Margaret Hall in Oxford. Very good to good have morning. you here. Good morning, happy to be here. Uh, Alan, the way in which we uh, tend to um, structure these conversations is we start by uh, uh, ruminating a little bit about um, your family background and where you came from and... Uh, maybe the sorts of values that you picked up from that background. Um, you were born in Rhodesia, weren't you? In, yeah, what's now Zambia. My, my dad, um, having failed to be a priest like almost everybody else in the family, lost, oh, is that right? lost, <laughs> lost his faith, uh, became the next best thing, which not not quite a missionary, but went out to run uh, educational services in Africa and spent about 30 years there, and, and I was born there. Wow. So did it, what, tell me about the losing the faith. Well, uh, I think there were there were vicars all around. I mean, brother vicars, brother-in-law vicars, father vicars. Um, and he went to Keble College, Oxford, on a theological scholarship. And while he was there, uh, I think to basically decided God didn't exist. Right. So he had to pay back his scholarship. Um, wow, he had to pay back a, his scholarship. I'm afraid so. It was harsh. You couldn't be an atheist. You couldn't be an atheist theologian in no. those days. Um, and um, and went into what was I suppose I, he, I mean, he wanted to be a journalist. He applied for the Liverpool Daily Post scheme, was turned down for that, and ended up um, being a colonial administrator. You don't remember much of that, presumably. No, we in the late fifties when I was about five, I think he thought he felt the wind of change blowing through through Africa, and and we came home. So my basically my sentient life was all in the UK. And your mum? My mum was a nurse, um, of quite sort of modest background, um, uh, a single mother. She had a single mother, and so there was never any money there, which I think was a sort of factor in our own upbringing. Uh, nursed in London at Guy's Hospital during the war, and then went out to Africa, uh, where she met my dad. And was that, what, what, what were the sort of values that you sort of you felt you received through your family? And was there was there a sense of? Well, they uh, were both. Um, Quietish, decent, uh, middle class, not rich, not poor. I mean, they were they were middle England, if you like, and um, because neither had been particularly wealthy at all, um, 
it was, there was always, I mean, money was, we, you know, I'm not saying we were ever short of money, but nor did we, we were overflowing with money. And, and there was, there was a, I think, a sort of wartime thrift. Right. So my mother saved everything, you know. Right. Old stockings, cans. Um, right, right, right. Uh, we made our own compost. Um, and, you know, I, every holiday I was, I would go out and find a job to work. So it was, it was a sort of, I suppose... Exactly, the sort of family that the Daily Mail would rather approve. Right. <laughs> and education was a was well, one of those priorities. It was, and um, uh, and I I disappointed my parents greatly when I was eleven by failing the eleven plus, which I now realise was a kind of catastrophe for them because. Uh, in those days, you either went to the local grammar school or you went to a secondary modern school. And if you went to a secondary modern school, which was my fate, then essentially it had, it was decided for you that you would be using your hands um, rather than your brain. How did it happen that you failed the 11 plus? Uh, well, uh, I think I, I think I discovered in my early 20s that my brain worked in a funny way. So I was very bad. I still am terribly bad. I, I can't remember the plots of films or books or uh, dates. Um, so the, the kind of thing that exams tended to test then and maybe even do now, i.e. the ability to memorise a lot of stuff, I just couldn't do. I know that's not exactly what the 11 plus did, but I think I had have a brain that, that is good at quite, quite good at some stuff and not very good at other stuff. And whatever it was that the 11 plus tested... Uh, I failed. And so my parents then um, decided they had to send me to a local private school, um, which which I, you know, have few regrets about because it was a really fantastic education. And I was then on a sort of conveyor belt which took me to Cambridge and blah, blah, blah. But from where I now sit as the principal of an Oxford college, it does make me extra determined that kids like me uh, uh, or kids not like me, but you know what I mean, um, have have at least uh, the thought that they might want to go to a place like Oxford. Yeah. And uh, you, music, music was also an important part of your your background <clears throat> as well. I, I sang in the, uh, the church choir and then I sang in the Guildford Cathedral Choir. Um, oh, in that ghastly cathedral on the top of well, the hill. I thought it was quite nice at the oh. time. <laughs> um, and... That was an extraordinary childhood. You know, every, every day, every lunchtime, we rehearsed for the evening. Every evening, every single evening, as a you know, ten-year-old, you did another rehearsal and you did even song, and then you went home and did your homework, and you did it again on Saturday. And you did it twice on Sunday, and uh, that was an incredible thing uh, in terms of concentration, discipline. It's hard work, isn't it, being a chorister? I mean, really yeah, hard work. Really, really tiring to, you know, to, to do, in a sense, another two or three hours a day on top of whatever all your contemporaries were doing, and then doing your homework on top of that. It was, um, but I do think, uh, I mean, it was an amazing thing to do at that age. And do you pick up a sort of love of the Anglican choral tradition doing that? You do. I mean, I've, I've, I think I've always been fairly agnostic in terms of belief. But I can I can still recite the entire even song, <laughs> and Stanford and Finzi and all those sorts of and Finzi yeah, and yeah. and Howells and Sumption and blah blah blah. Oh, I love all that stuff. Mm. 
That's what I miss most from mm. St Paul's. Mm. <laughs> but it, but in terms of the sort of percolation of of uh, religion, that was sort of you were st- stood back a bit from that. Well, I I could never wholeheartedly believe, and I, this was sort of superstitious of me, a bit of me that meant that I didn't want not to believe. So I've never sort of come off the fence. But um, I'm interested in religion. I'm interested in the Church of England. I mean, I'm, I'm not hostile to it. I just don't feel I, I can personally fully you can't embrace sign it. up. No. And so, so that that um, childhood with that discipline and so forth, then that took you to Cambridge, mm-hmm. and you did English at mm-hmm. Cambridge. Was that a formative experience? Uh, it was lovely. Um, I mean, I played a lot of music. I, I met wonderful friends, had wonderful friendships. It was a blissful time. I think partly because of this, this whatever it was in my brain, um, I was a slow reader. And if if your task for the week is to read two Dickens novels and then write a 2,000-word essay on it, I quickly discovered I was not capable of reading two novels in a week. Uh, but nevertheless, you still had to write your essay, and you became rather good at bluffing. Um, right. So you G- had a journalist's a journalist's well, it was, yeah, prime skill. It was, great. <laughs> it was a very very good skill uh, to acquire. You know the rapid uh, accumulation of 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 uh, information and the ability to um, um, synthesize it and spew it back out quickly and accurately and plausibly is um, essentially what journalism is. <laughs> uh, although it didn't make me a great scholar, um, it was useful in other ways. But skipping forward a little, um, I know that when you... Uh, one of the things you've done reasonably recently is um, uh, played that great piece of Chopin, which was your mm. Um, mm. you know, sort of target for you, and uh, you wrote a book about it. Um, but also you had... You did brain scans and things like that because you were obviously interested in the way in which you think and the way in which you learn. Now, that it strikes me that, you know, someone from your background and now, you know, being an educationalist, what did you learn from, from that about the way, in which, the way in which people do learn? Well, um, so this was, this was in sort of late middle age, trying to play the Chopin Ballard number no. one um, uh, with a brain that, that had never remembered anything. Um, memorized anything um, and that was a reason to have my brain scanned to see whether at the age of whatever I was 58 that was possible and and the, the neuroscientists said yeah it's perfectly possible you know your, your brain is perfectly plastic enough and it turned out I could but it but now that I'm in charge of a college of 600 students I'm very interested in their different ways of learning and you know, there are, there are a great many of them who are very, very clever, otherwise they wouldn't be there, but learn in a different way. Some of them find it difficult to process information. Some of them, some of them have, find it difficult, have to draw some mind maps to try and... Uh, some have got straightforward dyslexia um, or dyspraxia. Uh, so there are all kinds of different obstacles to learning, and I think part of the job of an educationalist is to understand each student and work out what it, what the particular obstacles are and and the ways in which a, an organisation like Oxford works does it sort of uh, reward one particular style of of thinking over maybe the sort of style of thinking that you, that you have or other people have is it, it is well it... broad broadly yes I mean you know there is a uh, a 
very demanding curricula in, in curriculum in almost all subjects, and they are testing your ability to be fluent and and um, credible in in that curriculum. Uh, and there's an awful lot of testing goes on. I mean, actually, much more than at Cambridge. You know, quite often every term they come back at the end of the vacation and have to sit another test. Um, but having said that, th there's also, uh, I think, a a very big infrastructure to help people who struggle in one way or another, from you know, at its mildest anxiety through to severe learning disabilities, uh, and and they're very good at picking up the particular um, obstacles that, that may lie in a student's way. It's not prejudicial in class terms, is it? I, I mean, I think there is generally in the higher education system not necessarily a prejudice against class, but a, but a problem with acknowledging and working out what to do about the obstacles that we know come with being poor. So we've skipped forward uh, too quickly. So... Can we just rewind? It's my fault for going mm. forward too quickly. So you you start on the Cambridge Evening Post, is that right? Cambridge, Cambridge Evening News. Cambridge, yeah. News, Cambridge yeah. Evening News, and that was a and that was a um, uh, you presumably reporting on cats up trees and yeah. uh, and um, flower festivals and all of that sort of stuff. Um, yes, it was. It was at an age where a local newspaper was essentially the same as it had been for at least 100 years, if not 150 years. Um, it had a place in society. Um, people felt warmly towards the local newspaper. I mean, if you if you knocked on doors, e even after a bereavement, you would be welcomed in um, because it was an honour to be in a local newspaper. It was... A time before Robert Putnam and Bowling alone, you know, it was a place of flourishing civic life in in villages and towns, uh, and your job was to go around uh, chronicling it, um, not necessarily exposing things, just recording things and and um, and reflecting the community back to itself. Community, yeah. yeah, and uh, and the local paper made lots of money. I mean, I. I think they probably made about 30% profit margins at the time. Uh, it never occurred to anybody that there would never not be a business model for what we did. We never talked about business models. It was it didn't occur to us that the money wouldn't swill in through advertising and that people wouldn't want to go on being informed about their communities. So it was a it was almost the last generation to be able to work on a local newspaper when it was that kind of thing. Being a terrible old romantic reactionary, I find a I have a nostalgia for the sort of newspaper world or that world that you describe about the relationship between a community and a, a newspaper. Well, yes. I mean, I had, this, I had this wonderful thing when I was writing my most recent book, which, is, which is began with this, and I was trying to reimagine what it was like to sit in the office of the Cambridge Evening News surrounded by paper, because we still use typewriters, uh, capturing this... this um, you know, the minutiae of visual life. And I, I wrote to my news editor of the time, who was still alive, and I said, you know, can you just give me some prompts? And he said, well, I can do better than that, because when I left, I swept all my papers into a box, and I've still got them. So I raced up the M11, opened this box, and 
there was the smell of a newsroom from 1976. <laughs> uh, and, all and reports from the young Alan Rusbridger. Well, no, it was Roneoed press releases and little village flower societies and the local cribbage club, all wanting to be in the local paper. Um, and it was like a little sort of time capsule of not only a newspaper life, but of community life and, and, and what a paper did its best to record. So thus far we've we've described some pretty traditional sorts of values um local newspapers yeah. church choirs yeah. public school yeah. all that sort of stuff but then you move on to the guardian mm-hmm. and then your time at the guardian is is a time where this is a time of revolution i mean in terms of yeah, it wasn't information to technology begin with i mean when i joined the guardian 1979 and I, you know i left and came back but broadly most of my career was on The Guardian, and to begin with, it was completely conventional. I'm right up to the time that I became editor in 1995. We were just a newspaper. Uh, we didn't sell many copies. We were it was you know a newspaper held in high regard, but read by few. Um, but essentially, the job was the same, only on a national and international scale. Um, and again, Nobody really queried that. Why would you? I mean, that was that was the way that the Guardian had been going since eighteen twenty one. Um, been essentially in the same family ever since. In in nineteen ninety three, I had been to go and look at the internet in America because there wasn't much of an internet in Britain. But but I don't think we had had any sense of this uh, impending cataclysm. Did it strike? It was there a moment that it struck you that. This was the, you know, actually, this was going to change everything. Well, that 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 American trip, I came back, utterly convinced that newspapers would, that people would stop reading news on newspapers, that newspapers, as physical artifacts, would eventually die, and that this thing, I don't think it was called digital then; it was called. The web or something. <laughs> so, what was it you saw in America? What, what did you actually? I'm trying to work out. What... Well, I went. Well, we, we did four cities in four days. Crazy, you know, Chicago, Los Angeles, Houston, and New York. Um, and in each newspaper, there was a team of about three geeks. And in, I remember the New York Times. They were doing arts, and the bloke who was in charge of the New York Times web a bit said very confidently that news no one would ever read news on a computer screen but but they thought it could be useful for sort of listings and art so nobody nobody had a clue but i i just some instinct told me that this was going to be the future you've always been techie haven't you 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 love a gadget i love a gadget i mean i don't understand how gadgets work and i couldn't write a line of code but but um I, I'm I'm very interested in what they do and and then the the, the the societal changes that follow from it. So you're the you're the editor of the Guardian. Presumably you come back from that trip and there must be a like oh shit, what on earth are we going to do? Uh, yeah, well I I wrote a memo for my predecessor Peter Preston, but he was you know he was about to retire. But when I got in, that was one of my main things. I, I, um, and. I took over in 1995, and by it took two years, 1997, before we had a first pretty decent website. Um, but this was this was the first web. I mean, as now nobody knows it to be. I mean, it, it was basically publishing information 
uh, uh, digitally instead of via paper, that we hadn't had to sort of really examine the interactivity of the web, which began to happen about five years later, and that was known then as Web 2.0. Um, and I remember somebody coming to my office and saying, this is bigger than the first web, which seemed to me... It couldn't be true. It couldn't be true. Yeah. <laughs> How could you have anything that was bigger than reading stuff on a computer rather than paper? But, of course, she was right. Because there was interactivity, so you could... Uh, so is, is that the Web 2.0? Well, the huge change. I mean, of course that was a massive change, um, distributing stuff down telephone wires instead of in paper. But the massive change for society as a whole, which I think you know, many people still can't quite grasp the enormity of it is is four billion people on the planet being able to talk to each other, not needing an intermediary, not needing a gatekeeper. Uh, in fact, rather d distrusting, if not despising people claiming to be intermediaries and gatekeepers. And that is creating a completely different arrangement of society. And journalism is struggling to find a way to find relevance in that new world. And was there, was there a time when you... I mean, I, you understood early on that uh, this was going to revolutionise the way in which information was communicated. But did it also strike you at the same time that there's going to be a problem with how you make money out of this? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, very early on, you could see the money draining out of newspapers. Uh, this man, Craig Newmark, is now giving away his fortune back to newspapers. We started Craigslist and... That was basically the death of the local newspaper because cars, houses and jobs all went online. Uh, and, you know, not, not only did that take the money out of those papers, but also the reason to read it for a lot of people was to look at the small ads. Um, and The Guardian had been very dependent on classified advertising. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays, you're old enough to remember. M media, education, society, advertising. All that went. Um, that was about fifty million pounds disappeared from the Guardian's um, finances. Uh, so uh, it was a, a desperate challenge for most of us, and continues to be. It's interesting the way in which you put it about intermediaries, because when you said it that way, it just struck me that it sounded just a lot like the Reformation, um, insofar as, you know, there used to be the church as the intermediaries between God and people, and then this goes, and you sort of democratise access to the divine, which is part of the sort of Protestant Reformation. This is a. Well, this was a sort of a... I mean, I'm, and printing presses, of course, no, were, well, were all of a course part everyone, of that. Everyone and, says there was Gutenberg and then there was Zuckerberg, you know, I mean, they're, they're the... These two giant revolutions, and you know, it, arguably this one is even bigger than Gutenberg. Um, but it's very difficult. I mean, if you are a journalist, if you were a journalist and you lived in that old world, i.e., you know, 15 years ago, uh, and you had the printing press and they didn't, and you had the more or less monopoly on information and how it was uh, distributed and, and uh, curated. That was really nice. I mean, it really was, if you were a journalist. And, of course, you want to get back to that. And, you know, it seemed as though there was a sort of natural authority that came with being a journalist. Yes. Um, and it's very difficult to understand, let alone welcome, a different kind of world. And a lot of journalists are don't want to acknowledge it and are furious. I mean, really furious. They lost, their, they lost their priesthood. They lost their, they lost their priesthood and they... they 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 were very angry. I mean, I had a 
incandescent email the other day from somebody who was blaming me for the fact that he hadn't had a pay rise for four years and it was all to do with, you know, when you, it was all your fault because you embraced the internet and you didn't value print and you, um, you didn't immediately put up a paywall and all those kinds of things. And, uh, you know, you feel very sorry, of course, but, you know, it, it's a sort of, seems to me a failure to grasp what's going on if you, if you think that you can get back to that previous world and that previous world i mean the way in which it's changed it just highlights to me anyway this complex relationship between power privilege control over media and so forth and truth and the relationship between these two things which um now we're in such a different world about you know truth doesn't come from authority mm. again i suppose like the church mm. like newspapers and so forth but it's been heavily democratized and on one hand that feels like a jolly good thing but democratizing truth also empowers liars and it's that's the world in which we are now uh, tipped into um i know you've done an enormous amount of thinking about this but i mean how do we how do we disempower liars you know from from our world how do we reclaim something that we used to be comfortable calling truth so i i always tried not to use the word truth in connection with journalism. Because, really? You know, well, it's a big one, isn't it? It's it big, is a big, big one, one, but um, I mean... I think you could be, you should, of course, be truthful uh, and and fumble towards the truth. But let's just say that there should be a difference between things that are true and things that aren't and, and things that are facts and things that aren't and, there are, and things that are opinions and things that are lies. And you're quite right to say that now it's all out there. Uh, and uh, everybody has the uh, unequal ability, potential to publish um, stuff regardless of whether it's true or not. Uh, and th the one thing I think is that we are about five minutes into this revolution. It's going to take 100, if not 200 years to, to begin to understand it and sort it out. And everybody wants solutions by next Monday, you know. Um, and I sometimes I don't feel sorry for Mark Zuckerberg very often, uh, the owner of Facebook. Um, but I do think he has created something which is infinitely bigger, more problematic and uh, more complex than any 31-year-old could reasonably <laughs> <laughs> dream of. And to say to him come on, Mark, sort this out by next Monday. You know, which, which of us could? This, this is a huge intractable problem that we're going to be wrestling with in, in, a, you know, in generations to come. And it's reshaped our politics. I mean, it'd be hard to imagine how Trump would ever have been elected without um, that sort of, quote, democratisation of truth or whatever we want to call it, the way in which everybody's opinion... Uh, it's the same as everybody else's, as it were, and so there's, it doesn't seem to have that sense of authority that... Well, authority has to be earned, as you say now. It, it's not... You can't just say, um, here I am, I work for a newspaper, you have to believe me. Um, uh, you have to explain how you know something you have to show your evidence you have to be willing to be subject to challenge and and enter into debate and conversation those are i think sort of expected norms now um and again if you were a journalist accustomed to having what you believed was authority then then that's a that's a very tough thing to accustom yourself to 
add to that people like Trump, but not just Trump, who who begin almost by trying to delegitimize the old systems and saying, well, actually, the New York Times, arguably the greatest newspaper on the planet, is full of lies. It's fake. My facts are as good as their facts, if not better. So you try and sort of destroy the idea of an agreed factual basis for society. And you go further. You then say, well, actually, all the rotten old elites uh, in government, in science, in academia, climate change, law, they're all your enemy. They're all uh, lying. They're just a corrupt old establishment. We're going to drain the swamp. Uh, and there's no form of knowledge that you can trust. Um, so you might as well trust me. Um, and that's obviously really terrifying. So in this sort of wild west of information, those sorts of charismatic figures, if you can call Trump charismatic, but in some senses he is, um, that they're the ones that end up uh, being able to, uh, you know, sort of pull attention and... and uh, and support through this wild west of information. Yeah, and I think it was a process that the old media, as it were, started uh, in the sense that the most popular bits of the old media, you know, the mass, the mass circulation tabloids, which dealt in simpler and simpler messages and quite often saw their function as not necessarily informing a debate in its complexity but telling people what to think um, you then create and you know and and the broadcasters uh, you know going down from, from a sound bite that was 45 seconds to seven and a half seconds or whatever it is now so it, it favors people who have very simplistic messages and then you get these these geniuses who really deal more in emotion than in fact and have very black and white messages um, and and complexity. People saying, well, hold on, it's a bit more complicated than that, or there is a body of science over here that believes this, um, are all junked and disbelieved. So is part of the problem the collapse of a sort of clear distinction between editorial and, and news, comment and... That, that's, that's part of the problem in, in, in old media terms. Um, and in new media terms, at its worst, um, it's, um, I mean, there's a sense of losing your bearings that, that, that um, you know, last week, Honda, you know, was that because of Brexit or wasn't it because of Brexit? Is it a fact? Is that, are there facts there or is it just opinions? Um, I mean, the whole, the whole Brexit argument, you just think, well, um, who, who do you believe? Uh, is it Project Fear? Isn't it Project Fear? Uh, and so the sort of factual basis for trying to achieve the best possible um, uh, decision is a problematic one because no nobody can point to a set of facts that anybody agrees on. Is there is, is part of your admiration for the New York Times that they have always maintained a very sort of strict Chinese wall between? the sort of facts and values, as it were, between the sort of reporting -y side and the uh, opinion side? That, that, that's partly it, um, though I don't sort of... I don't think I sort of completely buy the whole objectivity thing. Because that wasn't... The, the Guardian didn't have no, that, did it? No. Well, I, would, I think we, we tried to 
distinguish between fact and opinion, but 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 the British style of reporting is very different from the American style. New York Times is more like the BBC in terms of 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 trying to be balanced. And also, it's quite boring sometimes. I mean, it, it just... <laughs> well, that is the other the, thing, the isn't it? Boring is good. You, know, you think, God, give us a bit of boringness and, you know, do just... I never heard you say that at the Guardian editorial meeting. Well, boring is good. Ideally, of course, you <laughs> aspire to be uh, factual and interesting. But, but there's nothing wrong with just plonking down all the information and... You know, each sentence and each paragraph can be scrutinised for for being truthful and accurate. And and if you get something wrong, you come back very quickly and say that was not quite wrong, not was quite not, not quite right. Um, and there's something rather magnificent about that. Yeah, and and necessary. But isn't that also part of what, in the sort of, you know, in our brave new world, also feels old fashioned? Unfortunately, but... Well, it, it has done, though I think uh, my sense in America at the moment is a rising tide of panic at a world in which you don't know what's true and what's not. Yeah. Um, and people looking at Congress and thinking, well, until recently Congress was not there, the Supreme Court is being sort of systematically packed and not just the Supreme Court, but the other courts. And people now looking at newspapers and thinking, oh, my God, it's the Washington Post and the New York Times. Um, that's what we've, that's all we've got. Um, and and um, turning back to them in some gratitude. Are you a political animal? Uh I don't know. I mean, I I don't know really how to answer that. I'm I'm intensely interested in politics. I've never belonged to a political party. Um, I don't have a sort of you know. You you always try me stepping back just a little bit. You have a sort of slightly donish sort of distance <laughs> oh, from the sort of <laughs> Oxford from, colleagues would be very <laughs> from the sort of um, you know those of us that are slightly more. Um, I don't know, this is what we're about, yeah. and this is what we believe, and so forth. And you, 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 you always, you, you, you always sort of feel more headmasterly <laughs> to the holding the ring or something like that, um, rather than necessarily being a sort of political animal yourself. Do you understand what well, yeah, I mean? No, I yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, no, I'm not. Well, I'm, I, as I say, I never, I was never a member of a political party. I, I'm intensely interested in, in issues and in solutions and in debates but i never felt that i personally had you know the answer or um or that i wanted to impose my answer on anybody else i mean you know there are great editors who who have behaved like that and who were like that but um you know cp scott editor for 57 years and was a liberal mp for quite a lot of that time and uh, you know for him sitting down and writing the main leader of the day, telling the nation and the politicians and the world what, <laughs> what to he think. Thought. That was part of his job, but it was not what personally motivated me. I, um, your time at The Guardian, apart from the, uh, the sort of internet explosion, um, was characterised, obviously, by a series of 
sort of major events, WikiLeaks obviously being one of the most important, um, those those sort of highs and lows. Tell me about some of those sort of. The, the, if you look back over your time mm. with the Guardian, mm. what are the most what are the things that you think are, are, other than changing the formats mm. and all of that? What were the stories that were like? Well, I do think we kept a, a intact a very powerful reporting room, and um, some people thought that didn't make business sense, but. I'm convinced that if you don't do that kind of reporting, then you're going to lose your audience very quickly or, or your point. And the more we did, the more we got amazing stories. So we, we got WikiLeaks. We got amazing stories about torture, rendition, about tax avoidance. We then did the Murdoch phone hacking scandal, which took about seven years to uh, uncover. We did British Aerospace and Arms. We did Jonathan Aitken, Cash for Questions. We did Edward Snowden and surveillance. We did undercover cops. We did an awful lot of work on slavery, on food, uh, and, and, and. Um, and if you become known as a paper that is, I hope, brave and is prepared to tackle this stuff and to uh, put resources behind it and defend it because you always get attacked or people trying to close down your reporting... Then, you know, the wonderful thing is people bring you more stories like that. Right, right, and, right. Then, <laughs> and then the readers think, yes, there's a paper that's on our side and is doing what a paper should. And that eventually translates into a business model. Um, uh, yeah, so that's absolutely what So when MI5 or the, the security services or whoever it is starts to, starts to um, breathe down your neck quite heavily, mm. um, I mean, I, there would there'll be some people... That they are squeaky bum moments, you know. You, you, they, they, they feel quite terrifying. Even just, you know, looking. When I remember looking through the glass into your editor, steam, steamed up glass. <laughs> it's like, I mean, how do you, how do you manage to, how do you manage to sort of like? Uh, well, I, I think stay... I was always very simple in my thinking that if if this story was true and it was in the public interest as we and we, you know we thought a lot about what the public interest was and how we define that uh, then it was my job to get into the paper um, and to defend the reporters um, and to put it out there in the public domain um, and if that meant that we were going to be showered with libel actions or agents of the state coming in and trying to smash up our computers, well, fine. That now, did that, happen, didn't it? it down did happen, down yeah. in the garage. Yeah. Um, and and you find other ways of reporting it. So uh, in the end, that's what you're there for. And if you don't want to publish those stories and you don't want to stand behind your reporters, then let someone else have a go. You know, I mean, that, that is the job of being an editor. And the WikiLeaks thing with, like, so many millions of words that suddenly pouring into to you. I mean, this is like drinking from a fire hydrant. How do you how, how you try and uh, take all of that information? Well, WikiLeaks and, and Edward Snowden, you know, yeah. and the Panama Papers and, and, and all those, those big journalistic collaborations. You know, this is obviously the new thing in the last 10 years. If you think back to the Pentagon Papers in the 1970s when the... the the quotes, the truth about the Vietnam War was revealed by a whistleblower. I mean, that was, I think, a few thousand pages of, of photocopied material as opposed to, you know, millions of documents that can now be smuggled out of a place on a 
on a on a on a thumb drive. Um, so ha- adapting new systems for dealing with vast amounts of data is one of the journalistic challenges of the last five years. And you must have been just, I mean, there's no, there was no map for any of this, was there? I mean, you were sort of making up as you went along. I mean, I don't mean that in any, no, I don't just, mean in any pejorative way. There was no other way of doing it, presumably. Yeah, no. I mean, that, that, that's the nice thing about being a journalist. Now, I mean, it, there's all kinds of scary things and terrifying things, including business models. Um, but the upside is it's incredibly invigorating. I think you're in a completely different ecosystem of, of information. Uh, you're no longer on a perch above the reader. You're down there with the reader, and you've got to work out how that works. There's the the, the infinite possibilities of video and data and data search and, and handling documents and dissemination and graphics. I mean, so there's... A, a wholesale reinvention of the craft of journalism, which is, I mean, if you're not exhilarated by that, then, you know, you, you shouldn't be a journalist. So it's it's not, I mean, I was going to say it's not all bad. It's a lot of it is really wonderful. Yeah. And there's great power that comes. I mean, whatever the, whatever's changed and so forth and the, the way in which the reader has, has come into the picture more, there's, there's a huge amount of power that you have. Huge amount of power. And, you know, I, I said when I took over The Guardian, the circulation was just over 400,000, and you reckoned there would be three readers per copy. So you were reaching an, a, a, a total universe of a million people, nearly 99% of them in Britain. Well, I read last week that The Guardian now says that it's reaching 180 million browsers. That's, uh, that's probably, let's call that 100 million readers, 100 million so it's grown. The power is quite extraordinary. By the power 100, is extraordinary. 100 million people now reading The Guardian every month all the way around the world. Uh, and that has, you know, it is a fantastic global, I hate to use the word, brand um, uh, and incredibly trusted and relied upon. And that idea, because as long as it can operate without a paywall of providing news as a public good because societies need reliable, unpolluted, independent news is a very, very powerful one. Have you ever, have you ever published something you really regret? <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah, but, but... But you don't want to talk about it. <laughs> well, I, my, my don't mind want to be specific. Always, my mind always goes blank. The lawyers. <laughs> No, I'm just trying. Well, I suppose yeah, there were stories. I mean, the stories we got wrong. You know, we once. I mean, that, and that's the worst feeling in the world. You know, we 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 were publishing things about tax once, and we published something about Tesco that were because tax is such a complicated subject, and we got it wrong. They had been guilty of tax avoidance, but a different kind of tax avoidance. And when when and you know that's a bad enemy to make Tesco. So a three billion got deep pockets. company yeah. and a very cross chief executive. Um, and uh, that took sort of six months of of legal action to resolve. And of course, you're sitting there kicking yourselves, thinking, "Why on earth did we fail to uh, to get that right in the first place?" So yeah, I mean, journalism is a very imperfect science and you know I, I, I started a corrections column very early on when I was there because I thought well 
let's be honest about what it is. It is it's an imperfect thing. We will get stuff wrong, and and we'll always come back and say that we got it wrong, and then people will trust us more. And I th- I think that's true. Though I sense a lot of newspapers still hate admitting error. The, the crown did the crown weigh heavily on your shoulders? Uh, yeah, it's and it, and it got more and more onerous. I mean, if you if you imagine a world in 1995 where your only job was to produce one newspaper a day, you know, one deadline, effectively. So you you worked up to nine o'clock in the evening, um, and at that went point, for a drink, and then <laughs> went for a drink, yeah. yeah. Um, and there was a business model. Um, it it and it was essentially the same thing that had been going on for 170 years at that point. By the time I left. Uh, everybody, more or less, in the world, apart from one or two specialist papers, was struggling for a business model. You were publishing 365 days a, a, a year, and virtually every minute of every day. So, when even when you were trying to sleep, there were things being published from New York or Los Angeles or Australia under the name of, of the Guardian. Um, uh, that was sort of ultimately your responsibility. Was, everything is a, respons- <laughs> is a responsibility. And it took about two years after stepping down before I realized what a human body should feel like, you know, because I was just, I was, I had adrenaline pumping through my veins um, all hours of day and night, which is, which is not a good thing, really. But presumably that, I mean, amongst all the other benefits, uh, an Oxford college must be rather dull compared to that. I mean, there, I'm sure there's other... Dull, other... there's dull's <laughs> and not the word I would use. Well, well comparatively, I mean, you're not going to have adrenaline pumping through your body every no, no, five it, minutes it's, um, in a seminar about it's XYZ. It's a stimulating place, yes, but, yes. It, but it is not... Um, <laughs> Dear listener, can you hear the tone in Mr. Rusbridge's voice? It is comparatively <laughs> calm. Calm, yeah. I mean, I just think what's fascinating about all of this, I, and I and I have to return to it, and I think we are, I think we're in the foothills of thinking about this as a massive philosophical problem, about the relationship between information, between freedom and truth, mm, mm. and how all of this works into our politics. And I mean, I think you're right that we're just five minutes into mm. what this means, but I, I think I don't know if many people have still yet grasped the way in which. You know, human history has changed in our lifetime so dramatically and, you know, what will follow is going to, whatever it's going to look like, is going to look nothing like it used to. And that's, and there's a sort of, I, I'm a bit giddy with, with looking at that and mm. not really understanding uh, how, yeah. how the future is going to look. Some of it, you see, I mean, I, I probably spend too much time on Twitter like you do, but um, some of it I like, you see, I, I think... I like the fact that the best people on Twitter listen. They don't. They don't just print. Sorry, sermons. Um, <laughs> they they respond. They don't say trust me. They say here's my evidence. Here's a link. Here's a screenshot. Um, there's a different kind of tone of voice. And there are hundreds of thousands of people who know stuff who never had the chance to be heard. And quite often. They know more stuff than journalists do, um, uh, and so yes, of course, there's a danger that you create your own, you create your own little filter bubble, and that you're 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 creating an echo chamber. Though I think I think that those dangers are overstated too. Oh. So there's lots in this new world 
and you think actually is quite a lot better than a billionaire proprietor with his printing press. I mean, someone like Richard Desmond, who, without falling out over Brexit, you know, began the, the <laughs> Brexit campaign by writing a yeah. cheque for a million pounds to Nigel Farage. That, that to me, was an abuse of what owning a printing press was about. And, you know, there, there were lots of terrible as well as very enlightened mm. press owners. So it's really boring to say but it, it's, it's all, you know... But didn't it used to be more straightforward? I mean, the Desmond example is a good example insofar as, like, it's it's terribly easy with a, with a newspaper like that to sort of divide through by the proprietor's uh, take on the world. So you can always, you know, it's like a teacher who says... Um, this is where I come from. It's up to you to sort of mm -hmm. like take out my own prejudices, mm -hmm. and um, and they're upfront about their prejudices. These days, it's much harder uh, that the sort of editorialising is more disguised. Uh, it, it it doesn't because there's no because it's more. You know, I don't even know who's in charge. I don't know who pays the bills. Mm -hmm. You know, so when we when you when you look at a newspaper like the Guardian with no paywall, you go. So, you know, where, where, who are the people who end up influencing this? Mm -hmm. uh, there obviously are, there always are going to be. Is it wealthy readers or is it, you know, uh, individuals that I can't mm -hmm. see? I can sort of see it with Desmond. I, I, I feel I sort of, I, I feel it's safer to, but, but with, with this new world, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a terrible old reactionary, but I, I, but I, but I find it confusing mm. as to know whether yeah, how do I, how do I sort of divide through it's by the really, really confusing. And I do think, I mean, media literacy always used to be something that was sort of scoffed at and scorned at as a sort of dud subject. But I think we owe it to our eleven-year-olds and twelve-year-olds who are beginning to to take an interest in news to try and help them understand who, who, who they can trust or why they think somebody could should be trusted or not. But what are the signals that indicate truth or untruth? Because it's an incredibly complicated thing to understand. I, I mean, I sort of think it must be, if you're a reader of the Daily Mail, which is not necessarily my favourite paper, but, but I, I admire many things about it. But it's a very different paper now from when it was being edited by Paul Dacre. Um, all, all doesn't, not doesn't quite believe the opposite of the things that it was saying. Not before, far off. But, but not far <laughs> off. Um, so what is, the, what is the voice of the Daily Mail? Was that just Paul Dacre? Was it just one very powerful and uh, able journalist who had a worldview and now has been replaced by another equally powerful and able journalist? But that's not how it was presented. It was presented as the voice of the Daily Mail, yes, yes, which yes. was a sort of institutional I mean, Dacre thing. Has this sort of, Dacre had that sort of like, felt like a sort of bullying presence in in the um, uh, hold over the paper. I mean, you but you had a you had a different sort of... You had a different hold over the Guardian. I mean, hold is—I didn't. Sorry, that's the wrong word. It's mm -hmm. pejorative. But mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there's still a shaping, shaping presence. You always had that technique of—I'll uh, I, I, I say this—you always had that take, technique at the beginning of meetings of talking terribly quietly and getting everybody to everybody to shut up and mm -hmm. listen and lean in. I always, mm -hmm. I always thought that was a—I always thought that was a device. <laughs> not, not conscious. No, but I mean, you—you—you you, you were at the Guardian when I was editing, and you saw a, 
I mean, I, I, I tried to devolve every decision to other people. You know, there was a comment editor. There was Jonathan Friedland was in charge of the leader room and the comment pages. Um, I absolutely was not charging into the leader room every morning saying, no. this is what The Guardian no, thinks. We must, you know, yeah. and that must be on the front page. Yeah. It was almost the opposite. You know, I was trying to create a world in, in which a, a large number of people were taking those decisions. Um, so, but, you know, with the, the Daily Mail is a, in many respects, a very fine newspaper, uh, as is the Financial Times. The, but they're, they're quite different ideas of what journalism should be. And it, it is quite problematic when you're trying to defend something called journalism to defend something that describes Fox News as well as the BBC. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're, they're different. Just finally, let's talk for a minute or two about the sort of, I don't know, left of centre progressive sort of uh, politics that we've that we've got in this country now. Got the Guardian's is a sort of champion of left of centre, liberal stroke, left um, political thinking. What's your take on where we are? We are just weeks away from Brexit. Mm. We have political parties falling apart. Um, these are unprecedented times. I feel really frightened. Um, and, you know, maybe this goes back to the beginning of the conversation because, you know, I was born after the Second World War and for the whole of my life I thought there was a relative degree of predictability about what was going to happen or about how we would decide what was going to happen and, and how government worked. And, and all that seems to be breaking down. Um, and the behaviour of the House of Commons at the moment appalls and terrifies me and the um, the sense of, of uh, recklessness. You know, we had an order, okay, I, I get that lots of people didn't feel that order worked for them and I, I would completely agree that there's something cruel about late neoliberal capitalism, whatever you want to call it. Um, and absolutely, we should look at that and, and, and try and find better ways of, of running our societies. But this sort of um, step into the unknown and, and the fact that, you know, as we're speaking, once again, they've said, oh, we're not going to give Parliament a vote. We're going to take this right down to the wire. Feels to me the opposite of what I understood the Brexiteers were trying to do, which was to sort of regain control. And so who, who's got the control at the moment? I, I don't know. I find myself puzzled and alarmed. Is it, does, does the... Um, I've always thought of you as a progressive. Um, mm. I mean, I'm, and I mean that in the terms of believing in human progress, mm. that things... I mean, particularly when, you, when you're talking about technology and so forth. But um, one of the last campaigns... Uh, that you did at The Guardian, which was terribly important, was on climate change mm. and uh, sort of highlighting the sort of some of the sort of impending disasters that were. Does your does your sort of progressive spirit sometimes get challenged by looking into this future? I, I, I only say this because I'm just I I don't have a progressive <laughs> instinct. Um, doesn't it, does does it somehow get challenged by you look to the future and actually some of it just scares the bejesus out of you? Yeah, well, I think that that may be part of the reason I'm feeling rather frightened at the moment. Um, 
Because a rational approach to climate change, it seems to me, would be to be extremely alarmed at this point in time and to be uh, and to be doing something urgent about it. And as a journalist, I can't think of a bigger story in the world today, and yet it's almost completely missing from you know, many news organisations. And when it appears, it's dressed up in scepticism as to whether it's true or not. And that's a kind of catastrophe because it makes politics impossible. If, if you're a politician, you're going to have to take the tough, chance, the, the tough decisions that I think politicians are going to have to take. See Macron recently and, you know, Diesel. Um, and if, if people have not been informed about it or prepared for it in any way, quite the reverse, told that actually it's all bollocks, then it makes politics <clears throat> impossible. Um, but also, I mean, there's a there's p- part of the part of the problem with that the, the, the new the new media world is that um, it's very difficult to prioritise the you know the the important always is sort of subordinated to the new or the exciting. And then with climate change, I mean, mm. it's terribly difficult to write well about climate change in a way that, you know, that has some sort of mass impact and mm. punch and so forth. And that's one of the sort of, that's one of the great weaknesses of what it is that well, I do newspapers think, I th- do. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, I mean, I, I hope that the Zuckerbergs and the... Larry and Sergey at Google and the people are running Twitter. I mean, it, it should be one of their great opportunities and responsibilities to use their platforms and their incredible technical expertise to work out a way to to do this so that if old media are failing in the task... Because I don't, I don't think there's any shortage of... Can you really see Mark Zuckerberg... Sort of, you know. Well, I think part of, I mean, I don't, I'm, I was going to, I've never met him, I met him once, but I, I don't really know what motivates him, and I'm perfectly prepared to believe he's a cynical, exploitative. Um, so and so. So and so. But I think it's also possible that he is, there's another side of him which comes out in those sort of rather idealistic, you know, statements about Facebook's purpose, which we can, you know, we should be cynical about, but nevertheless, I think there may be a, a um, utopian side to Zuckerberg, as there is to Jeff Bezos. You know, and what, what he's doing with his ownership of the Washington Post is rather remarkable. Um, and it would be incredible, wouldn't it, if if Zuckerberg and and Google and 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 Twitter and Amazon and Apple decided to do something incredible about climate change? And they would know better than me what that looked like because they're technologists. I'm not. Um, and I'm hoping they will. Me too. Alan Rusbridger, thank you very Great much. Great to talk. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it, and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing, and I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com.